evidence whatsoever. He lost every single one of those cases. And every time he tried to get one of those cases to the Supreme Court, he lost that as well. The Supreme Court never agreed with their with with his claims at all. And they never even agreed to take any of his cases. So we have 10 not, seconds, John. I, I would just say that we have to see what the Supreme Court will do, but they ought to follow the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and the Constitution. We have to leave it there. John Boniface, president of Free Speech for People. And that does it for our show. A huge congratulations to our producer, John Hamilton, and his wonderful wife, Yara, on the birth of their son this morning, William Dernay Hamilton. And congratulations to Jasmine, his sister, as well. On Monday, New Year's Day, we'll bring you a special on Julian Assange, the imprisoned WikiLeaks founder of the High Court of Justice in London. We'll hear what may be Assange's final appeal soon. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. You're listening to KBOO Community Radio, and we're in our annual end-of-year campaign. You can help us meet our $75,000 goal by going to kboo.fm give to make a contribution today. All donations will be matched up to $20,000 thanks to a generous group of anonymous donors. KBOO's independent programming is only possible with your support. Give now at kboo.fm give. Thanks so much for your support. I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! You're listening to KBU 90.7 FM. Hello and welcome to The Gap here on KBOO Portland. I am Tammy and with me virtually is Althea. Hello and good morning. Happy to be here. So today's going to be a little bit different. If we sound like we're not in station, it's because we are not. Um, we are pre-recording this episode, uh, last episode of the year. Uh, we're going to have our recent interview with Sisters of the Roads playing in just a little bit. Uh, and then we won't open up the phone lines later on for a community question. But stay tuned to hear us talk about, I guess, the best and worst of 2013, 2012, 2020. 2013. <laughs> Holy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, this is the gap. Um as Tammy likes to say, the most listened to show at 8 a.m. on Fridays on KBOO on the days that we're on. Uh, that was a big achievement for us this year. Um, and <laughs> so we're going to be, like Tammy said, going to one of our favorite interviews. Um, but before we do, we want to r- remind everybody that this is the last week of KBOO's end of year campaign. Now is a great time to support KBOO if you've liked The Gap, if you like other shows on KBOO. Um, KBOO.fm slash give is the link to donate, or you can text the word KBOO to 44321, and we really appreciate it. Shall we get into this this interview that we're revisiting? Sure, let's go for it. And today we are super lucky to be speaking with two key members of the organization Sisters of the Road. Joining us is their communications and fundraising director, Justice Haygard, and executive director, Kat Mahoney. For decades, Sisters of the Roads has been on the forefront of supporting individuals facing low-income challenges and experience in houselessness. Their incredible work includes providing meals, ensuring everyone is everyone can dine with dignity, and much more. But Sisters isn't just immediate relief. They also commit to seeking systemic solutions that address the root causes of homelessness and poverty with the ultimate aim of ending it. Thank you, Kat and Justice, for joining us into the studio today. How are y'all doing? 
Doing all right. How are you? All is well. How are you, Justice? Doing pretty good, and thanks for having us here today. Heck yeah. We, we're super excited for this interview. We talk about the org a lot and all the news and everything in between. But before we get into that, can you, when we talk about housing and uh, on homeless services in Portland, there are many different organizations and groups that make up this landscape. Can you tell us where Sisters fits into this landscape and what services you offer? Oh, that's me. Okay. Um, well, in in our perfected, like totally operational form, um, the main thing that we've had since 1979 is our kind of barter work cafe, right? Uh, program. Um, that's one one of the main components, and that's where, you know, we don't operate a soup kitchen. Um, we don't just give away food. People actually can come in, and they can, if they have money, they can pay. Um, for a meal, a dollar fifty since 1979, price hasn't changed. Um, also, we actually went to Congress and worked with uh, Senator Hatfield to pass a law saying people could use EBT to get hot food. Um, so we were the first uh, nonprofit cafe in, in the country to give hot food for food stamps. Um, and then, if neither of those work for you, you can spend 15 minutes working doing something like bussing tables, greeting people as they come in, uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, refilling people's water in order to earn a meal. And so that's that's kind of the thing that we're most known for. But on top of that, of course, we've always had our systemic change program as well that's been focused on addressing the root causes of uh, homelessness and poverty in order to end them so we can just be the coolest cafe on the planet um, and not have to, uh, you, you know, um, deal with the problems that are bringing people in the door in the first place. So it's awesome. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, it is a lot of this like frontline work and there's so many different pieces of the puzzle in the in the landscape in Portland. I'm curious in what kind of ways does Sisters intersect with other service providers? Portland Street Response, for example, has been in the news and talked about a lot lately. Well, we don't do direct service in that in that regard, but we do cooperate and collaborate with groups often because it, it's it takes every angle and every type of group to, to address the problems that we have. They're multifaceted, they're complex. Every individual has an individual need. So while our nonprofit cafe seems like a very general, like, oh, we feed people brunch and, and lunch, um, we also give people a sense of safety and community, a place to hang out. Um, and then with Portland Street Response, when that formed, we were ecstatic because it was a way that people could get help without having fear of police brutality or even just mismanagement of police who are not trained to help people in crises. So uh, you're talking about supporting it when it initially started. Have you had experiences with them since then? What's the experience been like? I had a personal experience with them mm -hmm. um, last year when during the snowstorm. I want to say that was probably February or March. Mm -hmm. I, uh, we had all gone home for the day early because it was starting to snow. And I ended up getting a text message from somebody saying, hey, there's somebody over on Northeast Broadway who's in trouble. And uh, she was in the street. She was taking off her clothes, she was just having a, a crisis. And Portland Street Response was caught up in the snowstorm and traffic, so they were about 45 minutes out. Mm. And I live walking distance, so I went over there. And by the time I got there, she had gone into a store, had locked herself in the bathroom, mm. and was like messing around with all the supplies in there. So I waited till she was calm, because we, we are trained in de-escalation techniques as well. So I waited till some of the noises kind of quieted down. I knocked on the door. I asked if she was okay and if she wanted to come out yet. And she said no. And I said, okay, let me know when you're ready. Waited a little longer. Eventually she came out. She started talking to me. She saw my hat. I had this. I had a Sisters of the Road hat on and I had my leather motorcycle jacket on. And she recognized the logo, which was interesting. Um, but she couldn't remember what we do. <laughs> But, she, but what she really transfixed on was my motorcycle jacket because she had had a motorcycle. Mm. She had an ex who had a motorcycle. So we actually talked about motorcycles and riding, and she started to calm down. And when Portland Street Response came in, initially she thought they were police, and she got incredibly anxious that they were going to arrest her. So they reassured her, no, we are not the police. And I reassured her that they are, they are our friends. Trust them. I trust them. And I watched Portland Street Response escort her outside into their van. They gave her socks. They gave her hot chocolate. They talked to her. Um, they asked her her name. You know, and they they just talked to her as a as a human being, and not as a problem, mm. and not as this um, 
sick, broken thing. They mm. treated her with dignity. And it, it, it contrasts the times I've watched police interact with somebody in crises where they're yelling orders at them and they eventually uh, allow their canine do- patrol to enter and they sick the dog on them. So, yes, we, I mean, the organization supports Portland Street Response. I personally support Portland Street Response and watching them work like that, that's, that's who we need. And when we talk about um, the communities that, that Sisters of the Road um, services, we've, and, you know, Portland Street Response and kind of just City Hall, um, you know, kind of being the worst when it comes to trying to actually help people who are just suffering tremendously. Um, between the camping bans and things like that. So how has your work in the communities that you service been impacted by recent city hall actions? Yeah, well, there's... um, It's not just the recent ones, right? The recent ones are the product of a long Mm. history of kind of underinvestment and actual actual root cause solutions to the problems that Portland is facing, right? And so um, we're in the situation we're in now where we have like one of the highest rates of unsheltered homelessness in the country, especially for uh, families with children, um, because we you know, we have historically underinvested in the amount of housing available, especially, uh, especially affordable housing, right? And there's like a direct correlation between people living outside and the cost of living going up, not in, in tune with people's wages. So um, there's that part. Um, but unfortunately, it's like the money that's being invested now is being invested in, you know, more kind of mass shelter sites, um, like the temporary alternative shelter site that just recently opened in uh, the Clinton Street Triangle. Um, it's being, you know, you know, hypothetically invested in enforcing this new camping ban, although they say they're not going to enforce it now, but for how long? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it's like... Um, when we had testimony against uh, putting these new campy rules, I really appreciated um, what, you know, Kaya, the executive director of Street Roots said, which is it's like a sad state of affairs when the, you know, the best shelter available to somebody is jail. Um, and that's not a situation where we want to end up in. It's also the most expensive um, mm. form of shelter. So part of the problem is that, you know, the city is constantly investing in keeping up appearances um, and and trying to quell like popular concern about the visibility of homelessness rather than actually trying to address the things that are causing people to be homeless in the first place. Um, and, and that's, you know, with these latest things, you're seeing that too, but it even goes back to like just the constant sweeps that we've been seeing over the years. It's like, you're just pushing people around all the time and spending tons of money doing it and it doesn't actually change anything and then you know you can watch i mean i think people are familiar with the site of seeing a camp get sweeped and then like a week later there's a new camp there we're just throw it's just a we're just throwing money away doing that kind of thing as opposed to trying to in, invest and in actually like you know we, we won't get immediate results right it doesn't you can't so solve the root causes tomorrow but if you make those long-term investments then one eventually you're going to be in a better place but two the situation's not going to get worse which is as long as we're not investing in those long-term solutions we're that's what's going to happen right mm-hmm. it's like if we do, if we don't deal with the affordable housing problem more people are going to end up you know experiencing homelessness yeah they keep throwing money at it but uh, the solutions are not viable and they're not sustainable well, you mentioned long-term solutions. Can you, for the people, what are, what are we referencing here? Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's housing. Housing is the solution to homelessness. It's not hard. Um, it, it, we try to make it more complicated than we need to. And, mm. you know, do some people need additional help in order to stay stable and stay in housing, like job training or mental health uh, assistance or, you know, drug re- rehabilitation? Sure. Um, but that's not most people. Um, at the end of the day, like, you know, most people need either just help getting in in the first place, um, whether that's financial or sometimes just bureaucratic, because it's like not always straightforward or easy to know you ha- how to get into housing that is available to people. Um, but then, you know, the financial assistance is, is really important, especially often at first, because mm-hmm. um, it's like to move from being on the street to, to being into a place, there's a lot that goes with it. I mean, including like, even if you get that housing, then it's like a lot of things that people don't think about. It's like, okay, now you have no furniture, you have no right. kitchen equipment. Um, and it's like all that stuff is a part of it too. And just the cost of moving into a place from living on the street and then the adaptation period um, before you can maybe stabilize over time. But um, there's, 
growing body of research all across the country that says like you know rapid rehousing really works if you just put people straight into housing from the street um it's actually you know more effective than anything else you could do with that money um in, in terms of actually solving the housing problem you know people there's a lot of to do that's made especially in a lot of like reporting and stuff around this around what, what about the addiction but it's like that's also a separate problem um you know dealing with addiction is very very hard it's it's like not easy for anyone and it's not easy for society to deal with it and you know we've had uh, we've had people using drugs and being addicted to drugs in our society for probably as long as there's been such a thing in people's mind as drugs um and so that's not necessarily going anywhere and it's just it is what it is but it's like what we can do is we can actually solve homelessness and then you know for people who are ready who are willing and and want to move into those kind of treatment programs who need it then we make those available to them and, and it's it's also a lot easier for them to succeed you know you come out of treatment and you have housing um already then you know, it just increases the chances that you won't relapse quite a lot, as opposed to you get out of that and now you're in a bureaucratic system that's trying to get you into housing while you stay in a shelter. Um, not not quite as effective. Yeah, thank you for that. And talking more about what's been happening in the last year, a new ta- a new an out of town player has entered the scene this year, Urban Alchemy, who lobbied the city to open to run the open air mass encampment, and that's being very gentle with the wording. Um, what has your experience been like working with them um, as far as they got a lot of pushback for a, closed, for a closed bidding process for being external to the community on an already controversial project? So what, what has that been like? I know, Kat, you've had a lot of experience with them. So when Urban Alchemy was in the running for the bidding process, they actually reached out to a number of groups in, in Portland area, and we were one of them. Um, and so I met with Kirkpatrick Taylor and Lena Miller. And, um, you know, our stance is housing first. Mm-hmm. Our stance is long-term, sustainable, real solutions, including living wages, including creating housing that has multiple bedrooms so that if you do have children or extended family, you're not leaving the Portland metro area because all we have here are studios and one bedrooms mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. You know, what happened to that? But so... Um, their mission, they say, is is to work with folks, um, have them in these temp shelters, and in theory, uh, be there as as ambassadors to help them get towards uh, permanent housing solutions. However, if you look at their um, track record, or at least if you Google them, mm. you'll find that there there's been controversial issues. There's been uh, apparently drug dealing in their camps. Some of them from the, the actual employees themselves dealing to the people there. There's been uh, violence now and then um and then in these camps it seems to be since they're up and running and brand new there's issues in which folks who may have a caseworker or a social worker are having issues trying to contact their clients and it's it's very disheartening to find that out and and i you know their mission is radically different from ours and when i met with them i asked them a number of questions uh as to how they're going to handle folks in portland and how every person is we see them as an individual. That's one of our values. So how are you going to view that? Because that, that's, you know, we cannot support this unless we understand that your values align with ours. And it turned out that, that they don't. Um, there are some nonprofits out there that will thrive on suffering. And if I'm going to be very blunt, I feel Urban Alchemy is one of those. Mm. Whereas we're a nonprofit that would love to end suffering and honestly just have a cafe or not even have to exist. And, um, you know, I think that for me, one of the things that in terms of what, what do we think is like part of the problem with the approach of urban alchemy is summed up by one of the quotes from the founder where uh, she said, we want to be the Google or Instagram of social services. Mm. Not, not the best approach. Um, Scaling. You, you know, yeah. scale fast, yeah. uh, move fast and don't be concerned about the consequences, right? It, make it all about growth. Um, that's what you're basically saying if that's what you want to be. Um, and, and they want to go national. And so what's happening here in Portland is not um, happening in a, a void too. It's like part of like this trend. I mean, they, they've been expanding rapidly across the country just a few years ago. They, they had one contract for managing public toilets in mm-hmm. San Francisco, and now they're, like, you know, like, 
soon to be probably like a hundred plus million dollar organization in just like five or six years that that's the kind of explosive growth and then with that it's going to inevitably come consequences because you're not thinking through what you're doing you're not thinking through how you're expanding you're not rooting yourself in the communities that you're entering into um and that's you know if you want to to be effective that's part of what you have to do because you have to look at like what the context you're operating in is right i mean that's i shouldn't have to say that but nonetheless <laughs> I have a, a, a quick follow-up for that is um for lack of better words it sounds like their business model and not the humane actually like trying to help people but the business model seems to be working why and how are they able to attain this much success like what is it about the their their mission and vision that is uh that that is working for them Poor not in the way that it should i think people fall in love very easily with what sounds like a quick and easy solution mm-hmm. and i think portland generally has an issue with that where they fall in love very quickly like oh this will solve all our issues we saw it with portland police saying oh we want shot spotter it's going to solve all our issues we'll know when every bullet is shot we'll know when every volleyball has popped we'll know everything (laughs) and clearly really bad idea yeah doesn't talk about the racial disparity doesn't talk about where are you putting these things and now that it doesn't work at all Precisely. Yeah. You know, I also have a story about Terry Green coming at me in my DMs <laughs> from Shots Potter. Um, All fair. <laughs> but with Urban Alchemy, it, it sounds like it's a done deal. Like, hey, we will run your camps. We will make sure your area is safe. We will enforce these really nice good neighbor agreements. We're going to do all this great stuff. And and we will make sure that the folks in the camp get one, one meal a day and a hefty snack. It's going to be rad. And so Portland says, this is great. This is a wonderful idea. We don't have to run around. We don't have to try and get our other nonprofits to get these resources who don't have enough money to come in. Because Urban Alchemy makes, what, almost $60 million a year or something with all their contracts now? Mm-hmm. And it's growing. Like, they are growing at the speed that she wants them, that Lena Miller wants them to grow. Mm. So they have the money to come in full staff or full whatever. And so, yeah, it looks like it's a done deal. You know, it's like you could buy a microphone, you could buy a, a sound station, or you could buy the whole package. Mm. And, and every city's like, oh my gosh, we don't even have to think. We just buy the whole package. Oh, right. Jeez. And then you find out it's not sustainable, it doesn't work, and it actually offers no way out. Well, that, that goes to the next question here. How do entities like Urban Alchemy get in the way of housing? Well, it's like at the end of the day, it's like you're just that's what you're you're putting all these dollars into this, like what's a temporary Band-Aid that's not actually going to solve the problem. And you put a Band-Aid on uh, like a wound that is like needs surgery. I mean, you know, it's not you're not that's not going to help that much. Um, So, you know, it's like one thing if you have a little scratch, but we have a lot more than a scratch right now. And so we need to um, to invest that money elsewhere. I mean, that's the ultimate reality. And and. You know, I think that um, it's easy to get in this kind of situation where people say, oh, well, the housing's not here now, so what are we going to do today? Um, and I think that it's sometimes it is hard because you, you, you're like, oh, it's not humane to have people living in tents on the street. And, you know, except, the you know, I know there's some people who actually that's what they like and that's great for them. They're, they're not the majority of people. They're almost no one. Um, and and so we know that this is not a good situation and we know, you know, that there um, that but it's like if you don't have that um, that that in product of where to put some someone and, and the shelter ends up being kind of like ter- long term housing for people that, you know, that's that's not what these things are designed for. That's not how this is like supposed to work. Um, it's like you look at what they've done in Houston, right, where they've really focused on on implementing a housing first model and they were able to do so with COVID relief funds and be very effective. And then they um, they they put somebody in in a shelter, but they're there for like two or three weeks and then they're mm-hmm. transitioned into housing mm-hmm. um, and they're focusing all their dollars on on creating that pipeline. And making sure that when they go to some encampment and say an outreach worker goes there, they say, hey, we can get you into housing in a few weeks. Are you interested? 90% of the people say yes. Um, and their success rate has been enormously, I mean, it's it's like, it's amazing model for us all to be looking towards because you can look and they'll say, 
not just a year later, but two years later, they're still having 80, 90% of people staying in housing. So it's working. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, they don't, they don't do sweeps in Houston mm-hmm. um, at all. They don't have to because people willingly come with the outreach workers and go to their temporary shelters because they know that there's a pathway for them. And so like, if we don't create that pathway, then what are we doing just creating more and more and more um, of these like places for people to be homeless? I mean, this is like, um, I often find myself uh, quoting Marsha Fudge, who's the head of uh, housing and urban development in the Biden administration. It's like, we don't need to create more places for people to be homeless. Like, it's just like, it's just, it's you're just throwing money away. I mean, effectively, when you're saying, okay, you can have your tent here, we're going to spend, you know, eight million dollars to have your tent here or to have you in a pod here and then you're going to be there till what till you get frustrated with the rules there and you decide that this isn't really working for you um a big thing i meant to mention earlier is like with the um the i think with the urban alchemy sites and with a lot of shelters you can't have visitors it's like cutting people off from community is the worst thing you can do. Mm. Um, people need that. Um, so, you know, this is this is part of the reason that people don't want to go to the shelters is because it's fine to deal with that for a little while. But after a while, you're just like, I would rather be in my tent and be able to live my life the way that works for me as opposed to having to, like, you know, have this kind of paternalistic figure who's telling me, you can't have visitors. You have to be here by this time. I mean, also, I could go on and on. Like, there's a whole other thing about people who work at night. Like, you know, if the shelter, you can't enter the shelter past a certain point, and like, mm. it's after you get off work and you have a job and you're homeless. Mm. Well, too bad. Um, I guess you're going to have to live on the street. So this is part of the thing is it's like these are one size fit all s- solutions. We're just going to put people in mass into these places, um, and we're just going to keep them there with no plan of how they're going to get out. Um, and, and, you know, that's the kind of situation that's being implemented. That's not, you know, that's not going to work. It's like, unless you have the downstream part of it figured out, then like just creating these shelter sites is just like, okay, we're, it's just a place to, to kind of cor- corner people off to get them out of sight, uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Um, and it's not, we don't want people to be living in tents. I mean, we want people to have access to meals, sanitation, all of that stuff, but um, it's just—it's really just a question of where are we investing the money, um, and especially when we know that there's money and money and money and money is being poured in, but being poured in to you know not necessarily the right things in many cases, um, and not in a coordinated way, which is another part of it. Um, well, and one of the other things is that these temporary shelters and sweeps and everything that we've seen, I mean, for decades, there's been some sort of sheltering system for folks who don't have homes. Mm-hmm. But at this moment in time, more than anything, just because it's it's so numerous, these things are made to hide people. Mm. They're not actually made to help mm. people. And, and sheltering and sweeps are for housed people, in mm-hmm. a sense, where you no longer have to walk by that tent, you yep. no longer have to see this person who maybe is arguing with their partner and they don't have four walls and a door so the things you do behind your closed door you're seeing on the street well if you don't like that then advocate for housing get them back in a house get them a help talk about how jobs need to have living wages talk about the notion of rent control rent stabilization some sort of program you know make sure there is some sort of long-term solution so so these temporary alternative shelters these affinity villages the people who use them and benefit from them it's wonderful but the reality is it's it's to hide the problem from housed folks. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and to some extent, I get it. And I don't even uh, want to feel like negative towards people for feeling that way, because it's it's painful to mm. watch people suffering mm. uh, and to see it so visibly all around you every day. It takes a toll on your soul in a certain way. And then it's just it's way easier to blame those people as it's like a moral failure it's a personal failure they messed up they started using drugs they they refused to like pick their life up that's so much easier to buy into than the idea that we failed them as a society and that i might have some you know measure of blame for being a part of that um and that's i think that that's the reality is that um that that is hard for people and i think that when you offer this out and say uh, no, they're not ready for they're not ready for housing. They we they we need to put them through this program first. They need to go to the site and clean up or like whatever it is that people are very willing to believe that because it in a way absolves them from responsibility. And if it's a moral failing, it's not necessarily moral failing of the individual. It's a moral failing of our government. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. on, on all levels, really. But 
Well, you just kind of mentioned some of the some of it, but um, the narratives and and also yes, people in in houses do drugs all the time. You know, like yeah. that's not um, and they fight and they do all these things. This is just humans, you know. Yeah. Um, and you talked about a little bit in in the work that you do with Sisters of the Road. What kind of misconceptions, myths, or narratives uh, do you encounter that are just not not true or incorrect? Oh, we sometimes get emails from folks who tell us that um, homeless people are drug addicts, so they should just get treatment first before they get any sort of housing, or why do they deserve housing where I have to have a job and get housing? And, and it's like, look, not every houseless person is doing drugs. Let's be honest. There are plenty of people who are housed who are doing drugs, like you just said. Mm-hmm. And if you are out and about in, in Chinatown where we are and you see things happening usually around evening time you will see it as housed people who will drive up onto our street or in our or blocks around us. In big SUVs. In big gigantic escalades like it's something out of like an FBI TV mm. show. Like mad money. And they will come out and start dealing to unhoused people. Uh. Uh-huh. And you know, when when you talk to people and entities that are, could actually do something about this, we have been told, oh well, the police don't go to Sisters of the Road, so they won't go. They won't patrol the block. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the myths we've tried to combat. Where it's like, look, not every house person is, but however, if somebody is going to in, indulge in something, there is a, a sense of empathy and understanding. Where it's like, if every day you're on heightened awareness, as somebody could slash my tent, somebody could hurt me. If you're female, the fears are tenfold. Mm-hmm. Especially female at night alone. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you do want to do and take something. Maybe you want to drink something. Maybe you want to do to just not think for a yeah. couple of hours. How many of us use Netflix as escapism? Mm. If you don't have Netflix, maybe you are going to smoke something. That doesn't make you a bad person. No. Well, and it's not it's not just that, right? Like it's like also um, people do it as survival mechanism. Like we we know that people like they actually take amphetamines just so they can stay up at night because sure. it's not the safe to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes when people do that, they can't come down, they can't go to sleep. So then they start, you know, using something to try to help them sleep during the day. And it's like that's like one of the ways that like it doesn't. It's like I think that the important thing around the drug use part of it is to understand that it's like it's not like a lifestyle choice it's not like that's like not i think that that's a or and it's not it's usually not always i mean it varies but it's not usually necessarily that people become homeless because they're using drugs and they their life falls apart it's like they become homeless and then they start using drugs right Mm -hmm. like so that's often the way that it goes too so i mean again just like it's not this moral feeling but um I mean, the other, um, some of the, there's a lot of different things that are misconceptions, but um, I think that um, the the drug thing is a big one. Um, the, the mental health thing is also a big one. It's like, of course, like a lot of people are like depressed and freaking out mm-hmm. when they live outside. I mean, like, it would be hard not to be depressed um, by what you have to face every day. Um, and, and in fact, that's one of the things that... Um, you know, is one of the biggest struggles for people is just being like having any sense of self-worth or belief that they deserve anything better than what they have. That's actually a huge issue um, as one. Um, We've also been told that it's easy to be homeless in Portland. Oh, yeah, because there's so many services. It's so yes. easy. Um, you know, um, it's it's like, you know, it's you have to be operating from a position of complete, like, not understanding of what people's lives are like mm. to, like, believe something like that. But, I mean, I think people do. They think, oh, we have all these services. It just enables people to be like, it's great. I get to live outside and do whatever I want and do drugs. And it's so cool. And it's like, that's not that's like not the reality right and that's another thing is the whole magnet myth so this is like an ongoing thing it always exists that they're just magnet cities that just attract um people coming from all over because they heard it's so great here um and then especially with measure 110 that's really been a narrative that we've heard from a lot of people Mm -hmm. is that oh they're just coming here because we made it easy for people to live outside and do drugs and it's like the reality is you look at any of the data that's available, it'll always tell you most people um, are who are experiencing homelessness are very close to where they last lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's like, one, it's like it's 
it's kind of like, what is this idea that people think that when you're living outside and you have no resources that you can just move wherever you want, mm -hmm. um, one, but also people like to stay connected to family, to friends, to familiar places, to community. Um, they want to stay, you know, close to those, those connections that they have to their former life um, um, when they, they end up on the street. So there, there, there's no magnet. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there, we could we could go on and on and on, but I mean, I think that those are those are some of the biggest ones. Is just and then also just understanding that it's not like people are refusing services. Um, in, in many p cases, the reason people are refusing services if they are is because they don't believe that anything will happen as a result, mm. um, and they like don't believe like if if I go with you to the shelter, I'm just going to be in that shelter indefinitely because there's no actually place for me to go after that and that's true in, a, in many ways yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. i mean this is the thing about that pipeline again it's like if you don't have a sense of belief or trust mm -hmm. from people um that that you're going to offer something that that is actually going to make their life better then why are they going to listen to you or why are they going to take some kind of referral from you they're not they're going to go you know that's not going to go anywhere that's a waste of time sure. and move on yeah. um and and the sweeps don't help because then it's like how are you going to trust some some person who's coming from the city that they're going to have anything useful to say to you when every time that somebody has come before it's to like post a notice that they're going to destroy your stuff yeah. um you know i mean this is part of the part of the whole whole shebang is that it's like you know this is the the reality that people deal with it's like it's it's incredibly hard to live outside for all the reasons it's dangerous um you know even just it's like uh, people have described it as a full-time job For just sure. to get fed every day yeah. um and much less navigate some of uh, any if you are trying to get on a wait list into housing or something like that it's like then you have to run across the city to go out to all these appointments and then and meanwhile you're leaving your tent and everything that belongs mm -hmm. to you just sitting somewhere unguarded hopefully nobody messes with it um but then maybe you come back and it's been destroyed you know i mean this is like the reality that people live with and then you have nothing and you have to start over again um, that's not even getting into things like, what if you lose your ID? Mm, right. How are you going to prove your identity if you did want to get a job or you do want to go into one of these programs? Um, and then you, when you don't have an address, like you don't have a birth certificate, you don't have any identifying documents. So it's just like, it's I, one of the things that I think it's just so important is to understand how incredibly hard it is um, and how difficult it is. And then imagine that. And then try to like view people's behavior through that lens right. rather than through the lens of like, you know, like your position kind of often maybe sitting comfortably in, in not, I'm not saying you, but I'm um, saying one's position where you maybe have, have a house, have a job and have a re relatively measure of stability in your life. Right, um, right changes the perspective well i want to pivot us here a little bit okay. because um sisters of the road purchased a new building very recently and you're in the process of reopening the cafe what can you tell us about that process <laughs> it was uh it, it was an adventure i'll tell okay, you that nice. <laughs> um it was a giant leap of faith mm -hmm. you know if we were at a crossroads last fall like what are we going to do we can't necessarily reopen in the space we're in every time we thought about fixing something we found three or four more problems sure. you know it's like you open a wall and all of a sudden oh surprise so we made a decision that we were going to buy a building finally and not be under a, a leasehold you know where we can't make repairs timely or we can't get certain things done because the building has has whatever else going on so we hunted around and it's funny because I had said, oh, man, I want the house of Louie. And then I looked around and it turned out it was for sale. <laughs> and a couple of months later, um, started a due diligence period. And like, you know, this idea took off sometime in mid-September. And then by February, I was in escrow. And then by the end of May, we signed for it. So, nice. yeah, um, it's three times the size of what we have. Basically, we're going to be able to put our administrative office and our cafe together under one roof finally. So so the whole team is together because we've been in two different buildings mm -hmm. and it makes it really hard for everyone to come together and meet because one of our values is that we all talk to each other, too, and have good relationships. And when you're in two separate buildings, you don't have that all the time. So ideally, there'll be more seating. There'll be more meals served every day. There'll be a community room specific outside of the cafe space so the cafe can stay open and people could say hey can I use this room for an hour and you can and when that room's not in use people can go in there and relax um, 
it's I mean it's gonna ideally in, in, encapsulate all the vibes and heart that the cafe always had but be in a bigger cleaner space and where are you at in the reopening process I mean you, you, obviously you just signed for it pretty recently yeah we're probably about two years out um, we started demolition that's almost done next phase will be to upgrade electrical plumbing repair the roof some other uh, things have to get cleaned up and then um, when all that is done, we'll we'll start doing build out and and uh, we'll have a campaign for all of that. To that, if our listeners are interested in learning more about Sisters of the Road, about what you do, or want to support your work, what's the best way for them to do that? They could go to our website, sistersoftheroad.org, and they can see some of our latest and greatest uh, escapades that we've been up to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They can check our Instagram account, which is also linked on our first page. There's a donate button up at the top right-hand corner. Um, And from our website, they could subscribe to our email newsletter. Um, and that's probably the best way to keep up on everything. That That's a good central hub to figure out what social media platform works best for you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, donations are great. Um, we, you know, we're a community funded organization. So that's where almost all our money comes from. We, you know, made a decision in the beginning that we just we would not really pursue government contracts as a source of funding and in order to stay independent mm-hmm. um, of all the things that come with that. So, um, you know, we rely on the community. Well, thank you so much. This has been incredible hearing from y'all. We're over here with Kat Mahoney and with uh, Justice Haygard um, from Sisters of the Road. Thank you so much. Uh, We're going to go on a quick musical break, and we'll be back in a couple of moments. from our musical break midway song here in our pre-recorded the gap program on kboo portland as a reminder we're not on today in person so you can't call in for a community question but we still have a lot to talk about we do and you know you can message us uh over email thegapradio at gmail.com or on instagram at thegapradio if you have thoughts about what we're talking about but you're just gonna hear tammy and i gab for now Um, So we're looking at the Portland Mercury put out at the end of 2023, the top uh, Portland's top villains for 2023 ranked. So we're going to be talking about their villains, giving our thoughts and reflections. And then uh, we'll we'll try to we'll try to talk about some heroes, too, because we don't want to we don't want to be too down. Yeah, they brought the villains. We'll bring the heroes. But I can't can't come in empty handed. Yeah. Well, okay. Leave the year empty handed, shall I say. Exactly. Well, you know who is leaving uh, empty-handed? Number six on their list of villains, lying big box retailers. REI, your your Starbucks, your Target. The biggest biggest retail liar of them all goes to Target, apparently, though. While it seems like it was a rough... There was a lot. There were a lot of runners up. It seems like the Mercury has picked Target as the biggest villain. Yeah. Well, they were lying. They were li- they, and they they lied about us. Is the important thing. They lied about us to appease their stockholders because they opened these itty bitty little stores, and they were like, "Oh no, actually, there's so much organized retail crime. We're being so targeted that targeted. Oops." no pun intended, that we actually have to close them. And it's in these really dangerous cities like Seattle and Portland and New York. And it's like, actually, those opening tiny targets was just a bad idea. And you were trying to hide that from your stockholders. And now there's this whole, you know, narrative that that's like what's really going on. I think if any of the stockholders for Target were to go to the Target on Halsey, they would be like, oh, this is insane. How does how do people park here? Like, how do you? I'm surprised more people haven't gotten to car accidents in that like tiny little. Yeah. Because it's right off of Halsey, or not even. It's like, and then you know Portland has this thing where lanes just disappear in the middle of the road. So you have your <laughs> quarter. We lane. do have that thing. Keep it's, Portland weird. Keep, keep the streets weird, huh? That's Pobot. That's Pbot. That's their motto, I guess. They're the ones keeping it weird while we're all just you know shopping at target or trying to not get hit by cars while going to target but just i mean it's it 
And also, like, you know what targets aren't suffering? The ones in the suburbs, even though they get hella people stealing there, too. But yeah. it's like part of their, you know, bottom line. Yeah, 100%. And that, like, you know, that there's... They basically made a pretty blatant attempt at manipulation and trying to manipulate public opinion and probably, you know, legislative action to cater to them. And it's like, is it... Are we about big box retailers from out of state or are we about local businesses? Because those things, like... And I say this all the time because I don't want to sound anti-business. I'm very pro, like, small and local businesses. It's just this... You know, and, and thinking about Kotex Task Force and how much that privileged. I kept harping on Bank of America, but it's not like they're on the heroes list either. I think they, they're still doing time on the villains list from 2008. But just so much of our putting energy towards, oh, we have to protect Target. It's like if you're going to Target, first of all, it's better that it's further from your house because then you really have to invest in the money that you're going to waste. You know what I mean? It's a return on investment, I think that's called. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. You but you better have to drive 20 to 30 minutes to to walk around and b- get a bunch of stuff that you don't need. And I say that about myself as well. But that I <laughs> I I need it to be further away from me. So it's like I better need a couple things and and have some intentions in mind before I I take myself over to Target. But then we not to mention the little ones never have anything we you want. We do see ahead. the little ones do not have everything. Don't get me started. The one on Halsey, I don't know. If we that was the one we went we, to yeah, together, right? Yeah. And it's yeah, you had you had to give me special instructions of like, hey, don't screw it up trying to get in there. It's if you you got one you shot do. at this, and if you don't make it, you it's have a nightmare. one shot, and then you have to give up and just go to the to the Trader Joe's up the street because you're like, oh, I missed my <laughs> exit to get to the Target. Although we yeah. say this, but also you know it is big box stores, retail stores like Target that when you tax them one percent, they end up being able to support the whole city through the fund, you the know, entire city government, the entire city government. Yeah, so sure. like clean energy fund that's good you know i'll, I'll take yeah. that you know um but does that mean that they now have like equal representation or like deserve to have special treatment by the city i don't know i i personally don't think so but but there is like a city interest in keeping those businesses around for the wrong reasons but then you have other you know legislators that can come in and tax them and then they can help us out a lot so i hear you it's a right it's a mixed bag it is a mixed bag. Well, shall we go on to the, the next... Uh, they're number five on their list. It's hilarious, yeah. The Oregonian Editorial Board. Yeah, the Oregonian is getting Whoa. a lot of flack for... Apparently, they're, like, blocking a bunch of people on Twitter and on social medias. Yeah, I, I, a bunch of uh, journalists and stuff. That's not great for a newspaper. That's not... <laughs> Although, no, if you can use the block no. button, use it. I love the block button, so I'm not going to... I mean... <laughs> on your personal account protect your peace you know what personal i mean personal business but if you're the lar- i don't know i'll <laughs> listen if you did something i'm gonna block you for the the largest newspaper in oregon i'm blocked by the largest newspaper in oregon is pretty funny kind of maybe it's a claim to fame i don't know um but specifically what the mercury was referencing was uh how much you know just some of the the editorials that they've they've put out um, defending Renee Gonzalez and Dan Ryan trying to sabotage charter reform of reforming city government, trying to uh, water down Measure 110 by recriminalizing drug use. And apparently they wrote five editorials. Uh, this is all quote from us. Wrote no less than five screeching editorials lambasting Portland's teachers for daring to go on strike. Uh, they also endorsed... Remember Derek Peterson for public Portland Public Schools Board? But then he was in that Christian nationalist group. This this article was also just a good reminder for me of all of the stuff that's happened this year. Yeah, definitely a good rundown to uh, to, to remember all of the stuff that happened. Um, yes, I remember all of that. And there and remember before that, I think it was a... Was it Teresa Bottomley that was trying to like... Oh, yeah. Top, yeah. Like, hey, guys, we see you. We affirm you. We love you. But. <laughs> but. We did sort of print a sort of racist attack against Joanne Hardesty with no proof. So we're sorry. Oops. We didn't. Hey our, hey, our bad. But it was breaking news. It's like, hey, actually, definitionally, it wasn't news because it was false. So. Number anyway. five. They, they, I would have bumped them up to like number three. But, you know, number five it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's 
you know, it's a, it's a competitive list. It is a competitive list, yeah. And it, <laughs> it only gets better and better, too. Um, yeah. Shall we move to number four on the yeah, do it. Portland Mercury villains list? Please, tell us. Uh, people for Portland, number four. Ooh. People for Portland living in Tigard. Uh, <laughs> not paying their taxes. Okay. Not paying Portland taxes. Um, putting up really big billboards. Um, Portland is a Schmidt show. That's that's their their branding. Um, they yeah they're they're pushing against Mike Schmidt, the Multnomah County DA, and Jessica Vega Peterson, the Multnomah County Chair. Um, There's a a quote here that says, um, "Well, I can't read all of it because it's morning radio." But um, <laughs> Ted Wheeler was quoted was quoted as saying, "They've gone too far," noting that. W- We've com- we've competed against other cities all around the country, and we're making it really, really easy for our competition. When we are when we have billboards that say <laughs> we suck really badly here. <laughs> Since when is is Ted Wheeler on the right side of history? This is so surprising. Uh, yeah, no, I I get you. <laughs> Stop it, guys! You can't you can't do that. But that's really funny. I can imagine because I've seen those billboards downtown. Yeah, and I can just imagine like people visiting from like whatever it is in, in the states or around the world, and they see it and they're like, "Wow, what an interesting billboard!" And being just really <laughs> confused, like, "What's a Smith show?" And thinking maybe it's like a TV show or something. And then I wonder, like, when a person just seeing that billboard out of nowhere, like how curious they get and how down the rabbit hole they end up uh, off of yeah. that, or if they're just like, "Hey, this is so quirky. Portland is awesome." Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing about their their previous, like, the past couple years of the Portland is a Schmidt show uh, billboards is that people thought they were ads for Mike Schmidt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's a good enough pun that people are like, yeah, I guess it's his show. It's a Schmidt show. It's um, a Schmidt show. <laughs> <laughs> the, this, this one billboard, this is the one I think that's right across, I want to say the Hawthorne um, bridge it says uh billions spent problems worse endless tent cities encouraging drug addiction murderers on the streets whoa. hello <laughs> whoa that's there's uh, what, what, what where are the rules about truth in advertising but uh i, I mean yeah just just fear mongering and the, the same people that want to talk about, that are so pro-business you know it's the same people from people for portland that are not um paying their business taxes so yeah it's a it's i'm just confused <laughs> It's like what? I sure I started people for Portland, but I don't live there and I don't pay taxes there, and I'm actually being sued by the city. That's I mean that's a story. That's a that's a that's a poem. I don't know. Is that poetic justice? Is that what that is? <laughs> Maybe forty six thousand in unpaid business taxes for one of the co-founders of People for Portland, Kevin Looper. Forty six grand, huh? That's 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 no easy. That's no chump change. Yeah. yeah. Um. And also, you know, considering that his whole thing is like, we love business and you have to let business flourish in Portland and like there are murderers on the streets and the businesses are going away and you're not paying your business tax. It's it just it's interesting to point out. Well, and it's like, I don't I mean, to to start to litigate who does and doesn't get to have an opinion, I feel like maybe is a little fraught, but uh, if you don't you gotta pay your taxes you if you're going to talk about taxes, you don't pay taxes for the in the city that you are trying to you know have influence on you don't pay your taxes for the businesses there and you also don't live there so what do you do in portland other than put up billboards and tweet racist stuff at journalists which that's another footnote in this uh this number four on the on the portland mercury's villains list and Mercury, you know, the Mercury really, they don't, uh, they don't mince words, man. They really go for the throat. Well, are we ready for number three then? Sure. Number three, Portland City Council and their employers at the Portland Metro Chamber slash Business Alliance. We have to remember that the Portland uh, Business Alliance rebrand was this year, which is wild. Um, yeah. So, hmm. Oh, you know, <laughs> if Prosper uh, Portland can do it, so can the Business Alliance. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they tried to call themselves just the, like, the Portland Metro Council, which sounds like a legislative body. Like, you're going to confuse the heck out of people with that. Anyway, any number of reasons to point the finger at Portland City Council. Obviously, we've been keeping an eye on them for a while. 
Um, torpedoing a proposal for a transparency watchdog to oversee council corruption, watering down the voter approved demand for more police transparency. Um, Gonzalez maps and Ryan trying to slow down and sabotage charter reform. Um, although I believe uh, this is written by the editor in chief of the Portland Mercury calls them cl- looking like clowns in the process. Um, who somebody co- literally called them clowns? I have to, I'll have to find that. Um, Oh, the co-founder of Ranked Choice Voting Oregon. Going back and forth in front of the voters makes us look like a clown car. I'm glad that people are picking up that we are doing a lot of clown world stuff. And, you know, the circus has to end at some point. You know, it can't not last Mm. forever. The elephants Mm. get tired. The people doing the jugglers, the juggling get tired. The clowns get tired. They got to get back into their car. We're going to we're going to shut down the the circus. Yeah. Okay. Number two on the villains list for the Portland Mercury, Portland Police Bureau and the Portland Police Association. Um, They say sometimes headlines tell a story. Do you want to alternate just reading through these headlines? Portland police went to fewer calls, made fewer arrests in recent years, but used force in greater percentage of arrests, data shows. How long is Portland's average police response time? Longer than you think. Federal judge questions Portland police union's demands over body cam. Union officials believe police should be able to review body cam footage before filing use of force reports. Yikes. Some Portland officers responded to LGBTQ plus training with racist feedback, report says. Yeah, so, you know, just a little a little redux of some of what Portland police have been up to. We are work, you know, body cameras in progress. Uh, you remember Brian Hunziker, who leaked the Portland police officer who leaked the false information about Commissioner Hardesty? Well, he got reinstated, but then he got he had to quit again because they found out he was moonlighting. He was working two jobs and got to pay those bills. Yeah. <laughs> Which he can't. He can't do He's that. He's actually but not allowed he, to he, do was, that. he was, and he did. Um, um, God, that was... There's, I forgot about that. Remember, we were, pl- we were talking about Reba and how he's a, a single mom who works too hard, <laughs> who loves his kids and never stops. That's so true. Well, there's I, th- we haven't even finished this because there's a they point they remind here um, in an interview with Bike Portland Sergeant Ty Engstrom said the quiet part out loud, admitting the bureau had lied in 2021 about there not being enough officers to enforce traffic laws in order to trick city council into increasing their already bloated budget. Quote: We needed to create a stir to get some change to get them city council to fund us back up. I mean, that's the honest truth. I know that could make things more dangerous i don't know but at the same time we needed some change that was the quote that's the quote from a police sergeant that's not great it's not that's not great it's Um, funny but it's not great did he really say this yeah in an interview with bike portland and he goes i mean it's the honest truth hey you know hey (laughs) what can i do hey come on they said a squeaky oil gets the wheel i squeaked a little so so sue me what you (laughs) Uh, what are you gonna do (laughs) i'm I'm damned if i'm doing damned if i don't (laughs) everyone's a critic next thing you're gonna tell me i shouldn't be lying to the city council yeah (laughs) anyway number one number one on the villains list tammy take us there commissioner renee gonzalez Woo! i mean congratulations to get to the number one spot on your first year Um, on council that's a good point that's that's good for him i mean not bad for all of us i'm being facetious um so he's been busy that's that's something well, wasn't, wasn't there like a... Yeah, he's doing something. Not responding to the Portland Street response is one of the things he's not been doing. But he's been doing other things. <laughs> he's doing something, but are those things good? Yep, he's cutting their budget. He's ordered a Portland Street response to help with sweeps. It says they can't give out tents just before the worst storm we've had in years. Um, can't... W- won't expand it, even though they... Uh, he supposedly says that he really wants to. He just really can't right now. Did he ever get back um, to them for um, in the letter that we talked about last week? Uh, from Portland Street Response supporters? Yeah. It appears that no. He has refused to meet with constituents. Oh, cool. Um, That's great right before an election year. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's good. Well, and he wants to be mayor. It's wild. Well, and, and you know, like we mentioned earlier, Gonzalez was, was teaming up with Dan Ryan and Mingus Maps at different times to try to sabotage the new government and voting system that we'll get to do next year. Um... So that's cool. <laughs> was he the one that said that there aren't twelve Portlanders who'd be able to run for city council, or is that Mingus Maps? <laughs> yeah, there were there weren't twelve qualified people. <laughs> I think maybe Maps was the one that like implied that voters weren't smart enough to understand it. I wish they would have put um, Renee Gonzalez and Maps together. Like I feel like they're like a dynamic duo, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Any? Should we talk about our heroes? What do you think? Yeah, That's I would love to talk about the time. heroes. Um, okay, we wanted to leave you on a good note. Yeah. Tammy, who, give me one of your heroes. One of my heroes um, is Portland bike bikers, and not like bicyclists, um, who have been on the behind of the city whenever they try to put up a bike lane, take away bike lane, put on a bike lane, take away bike lane. And they, yeah. I can't even remember how a couple of months ago, they were protesting um, as the truck was trying to remove another bike lane on 33rd. And they stood there with their bikes and they said, you shall not pass. And that's what yeah. I'm talking about. I love that. It might seem arbitrary for some, <laughs> but no, it's so not arbitrary. It's, yeah. I, I'm not even gonna, it's, it's, it's a good thing. And I was really proud of seeing them. And I think that they were the unsung heroes of, of 2023, at least some of them. Yeah. Stop, stop the bike lane removal and you know pick a lane pick a lane Ew. there you go and also you know to to bike portland for exposing the hypocrisy within mm-hmm. pbot where they're 32 million dollars in the hole but still have time to rip out bike lanes without telling anybody uh who are some of your heroes for the year well i wanted to um shout out the reporters over at street roots uh for you know exposing more of what Portland City Council has been doing, particularly Jeremiah Hayden's uh, pieces about Zenith and how they secretly courted uh, city officials. There was something about a boat trip, something about a visit the facility and we'll do renewable fuels and sort of spit in the face of everything that everybody in Portland wants, which is a clean and safe future and it was the most agreeable thing you know it's a real thorn in my side so you know do you have more heroes to shout out yeah um Kebu is a hero i know it might be a little cheesy but i'm gonna say it i think it's a hero for me it is it's a place for people to come together like-minded or even not or people who just want to learn yes 100 percent um well okay let me let me say my my last hero of 2023 is maybe a little bit more broad portlanders that are committed to making a difference you know like there are people in our town all the time trying to do the right thing one of the the most wonderful things about portland is how we all want it to be better (laughs) and we're actually committed to to making that happen and you know charter reform that's my I'm so excited. We've been talking about this for like three years, dude. Charter reform next year. It's going to be like 150 people running. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to be utter chaos. Actually talking with people around town about the charter uh, review. Yeah. It's first off, apparently it's not like something that every single person is like fully aware of what it is. And we're a little obsessed, you and I. (laughs) We are. There's a little bit. So when I talk to people about it, either people who are brand new to town or people who have lived here for a long time, and everyone knows someone who's going to run. And that's exactly how it should be. Everywhere, 